This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. God said to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Please be seated. All right, so I lied. Uh, not the first time in my life. I'm sure it's probably not the last. Uh, I said last week that we would cover all of chapter 3 and half of chapter 4, and we would just kind of work through this conversion and call of Moses. There's a three-and-a-half-minute conversation that happens between God and Moses, and at some point I want to look at it from 40,000 feet, from a bird's-eye view. I think it's incredibly instructive for our lives. Moses goes from uh, this uh, position of worship and humility. He begins to become suspicious and he begins to doubt God. And at the end, he essentially rejects God's call in his life. And God, of course, doesn't accept that rejection, um, but continues to work in spite of Moses through Moses. So I, I look forward to that sermon. But as I began to, to study in verse 16 and following of chapter 3, because we covered 1 through 15 last week, uh, I just couldn't force myself uh, yet to, to take on the entirety of the conversation. In chapter 3, verse 16 through 22, you have uh, God speaking the entire time. And God is talking to Moses, and he's giving a prophetic preview of what's going to happen in the book of Exodus. If you remember, Exodus is summarized and outlined as deliverance, instruction, presence. And in our text today, God is giving a prophetic preview of all that's going to happen in the deliverance. And so there's a sense in which nowhere else in the book are are all these chapters condensed to a few verses. And so what I want to do before we get started is is give us um, the overview of what's going to happen in the deliverance and four truths about God that we have to keep in mind. Or when we get into the details of the story of the deliverance, we might get sideways. And so God is telling Moses and us, you have to keep these four things in mind about me as we walk through the deliverance, the the taking of the people of Israel out of the slavery that they're experiencing in Egypt. It's kind of like a preview for a movie, but it's a bad preview because it gives you the end uh, from the beginning. So God leaves no mystery as to what's going to happen. 
God is going to teach us this morning that he's a God who promises a full salvation. Uh, He's a God who provides for his people. He's a God who punishes evil. And he's a God who accepts sacrifice. Full salvation, provision for his people, punishment of evil, and he accepts sacrifice. And so like a preview, some of uh, our transitions will be a little bit disjointed. I won't take the time to make everything flow and work together. I'm just going to give you uh, these four truths about God and uh, make some connections. So first, God is a God who promises full salvation. And this is my hope for you in this first point, is that you kind of take away the idea that God doesn't do anything halfway. And God finishes what he starts He finishes it on his timetable, which is frustrating to us, but he finishes what he starts. Look with me uh, at verse 16. If you weren't here last week, God has just told Moses that Moses is going to be his human deliverer as he acts as the sovereign ultimate deliverer. And so now he's giving his human deliverer some marching orders, okay? So chapter 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So observed is this word for an extended visit. God is saying, tell them that it may appear as though I've been absent over the last several hundred years, but I've been taking copious notes of all that has happened to you in Egypt. Your suffering was not lost on me. Verse 17, and I promise... It's a key word in the passage. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. So if you've been with us for the three or four weeks where we've been going through Exodus, Moses has used like half a dozen different words to describe what has happened uh, to the Israelites uh, in Egypt. And a lot of them are just given as affliction because we in the English, we don't like... we, don't, uh, we like to summarize things sometimes. So sometimes we lose the nuance, if you will. But he, he has said this, I've seen the affliction, I've seen the burden, I've seen the oppression, I've seen the tribulation, I've seen the pressure, I've seen the pain that has been going on for hundreds of years. If you weren't here, it was forced slavery, uh, dehumanization, brutal workloads, being away from family for months and years to do whatever Pharaoh wanted, being hated by your neighbor and, and, and then in your neighbor's dread of you, uh, killing you and your children. So this is um, the affliction that God has been paying attention to now for several hundred years. And God is saying, I will bring you out. And then pick up in 17 in the middle. This is where we're going. To the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God's saying, I'm not just going to bring you out of affliction. He's saying, I'm going to bless you with abundance. God's saying, I don't take people out of bondage and take them to the place of neutrality. I take people out of bondage and I bless them. God doesn't do anything halfway. For there to be enough prosperity for milk to flow really is literally the word for gush, like uncontrollable gushing. It means that the animals that produce the milk have no predators and they have plenty of grass to eat. For there to be honey means that there's an abundance of beautiful plants, that there's flowers everywhere. For the honey that is sticky and doesn't normally flow, this is God promising incredible abundance to his people. And he says, verse 17, I promise, I will do this, both deliverance 
and blessing. Know this about me. I don't do anything halfway. Now just stop and think about what you know about God's salvation of us. Not just deliverance, but inheritance. Not just forgiveness for sins, but imputed righteousness by grace. So in other words, he's, God doesn't say, you know what, I'm just going to forgive you. He says, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to give you a perfect record because you couldn't have done it on your own anyway. Not just God's not mad at you anymore, but God is deeply in love with you. Not just release from our indebtedness to him, but he makes us co-heirs with Christ, that everything Christ has is ours. Not just deliverance from death's oppression, but he says, I'm going to live inside of you and I'm going to indwell you and give you incredible life. So this is the promise. But think about the nature of a promise, okay? Our salvation to our great frustration is not instantaneous. Sure, we're forgiven. Sure, we're righteous. Sure, God loves us. But our experience of his deliverance and our entrance into the fullness of the shalom and the peace that he promises us is just not here yet. It hasn't happened. God's promise and plan are sure he will not be thwarted, but our experience of his plan lasts a lifetime. So God says, this is how a promise works. I do promise, but part of it is still in promise. So Paul talks about the realities of God in Philippians 1. He says, I'm sure of this. And he says to us, you can be sure of this too. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite healing stories in all of the Gospels and all of uh, the first four books of the New Testament that talk about the life of Jesus, my favorite healing story is Mark chapter 8. Most of Jesus' uh, miraculous healings are instantaneous, okay? It's like the lame leap for joy. Uh, the deaf hear incredibly well. The dead uh, are raised to new life, better life than what they had prior to becoming sick. Water is turned uh, completely into good wine. And, and, and the reason that most of Jesus' signs are perform, miracles are performed this way is because exactly that, they're signs. They point to something in the future. They're a picture of his final kingdom. They're, they're a picture of his kingdom consummated, I guess I would say. So his kingdom is here now, and it's growing, and one day he's going to bring it in fullness. And so when Jesus does miracles in his life, all of them except for one that we know of in the Gospels is instantaneous. And, and it's a picture of what's to come. The ultimate reality is actually the picture because the people who are sick still get sick and eventually die. Lazarus, brought back to life, dies. The, the miracles themselves point to so much more than a person walking. They, they point to the reality that one glorious day, everything is going to be perfect. But my favorite miracle story is in Mark 8. Some folks bring to Jesus a blind man and they beg him to touch him. And Jesus takes the blind man out of the village and he spits on his eyes. That's part of why it's my favorite. And, and he touched him. And he said, do you see anything? And the blind man looks up and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And so Jesus laid his hands on him again, and the man opens his eyes again, and this time his sight was restored. He could see clearly and perfectly. And in the context of Mark, what's going on in that passage? What's the point? One day I will bring an end to all blindness. One day you'll be perfect, physically, spiritually, emotionally, 
relationally. One day I will lock up sickness and death and I will throw it into a, a bottomless pit. I will lock the door and throw away the key. One glorious day, everything will be made right. But it's not instantaneous. In other words, it's going to take multiple, multiple touches and then one grand glorious final touch by Jesus for us to enter into the new heaven, the new earth, the new city. He who began a good work in you will complete it. So God is saying, I don't do anything halfway. From crushing affliction to ultimate flourishing. But he says, I don't do anything halfway. And he says, part of our salvation experience is present with us now. And part of our salvation experience is promise that we live in the middle. And in this reality, it's incredibly important for us to learn the second thing that God says about his people, which is this. God is a God who provides for his people in the journey. So God's saying, I will take you somewhere. It's going to take us quite a long period of time. It's going to take millennia, actually, to get to where I'm promising. But in the journey, I provide for my people. So pick up in verse 21. So in 16 and 17, God tells Moses, I want you to go and announce uh, the good news of full salvation to the elders. And then in 18 through 20, he says, I want you and the elders to visit Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh know that I've met with you and that I want you uh, to go out into the wilderness. And God says, listen, Pharaoh is not going to agree with the plan. But, but after I'm done dealing with Pharaoh, uh, he will certainly let you go. So in verses 21 and 22, this is God speaking of how Israel will leave Egypt. And I will give this people, the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her neighbor's house for silver and gold jewelry. It's just better. It's just articles. It's utensils. It's not the word for jewelry. It's the, it's the word for trinkets and, and articles and utensils. And he said, and also you should ask them for clothing. And you should put them, speaking of the clothing, on your sons and your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Okay, so there's a lot going on in these verses. We're going to actually probably have entire sermons uh, on some of these realities. There is so much going on. First, God is letting us know that there's no bounds. There is no limits to his power. He can change, modify, and direct the affections of humans' hearts. I mean, the Egyptians for multiple generations had oppressed the Israelites, had arrogantly believed that they were better than them. At the same time, they lived in dread of them because the Israelites were multiplying all around them. So in arrogance, they enslaved them, and in fear, they crushed them. And God says to Moses, I will work so powerfully in Egypt that when you leave, the women will ask their neighbors for their most valuable possessions, and the Egyptians will give you what you request. He says, not because they fear you and not because you force them, but because they favor you. God says clearly, I will give you favor in their sight. I will charm your existence in their minds. No limit to God's power. Second, God is letting us know that the context is war. He says, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Plundering happens when a victor takes possessions from a defeated enemy. The war is between God and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. And, and while the Egyptians will gladly give the, the Israelites plunder, God is letting the Israelites know 
that this is the possession of a conquered enemy, that this is plunder. And so while there's a lot going on here in this passage, I want to just have us focus in on something very basic. God, in stunning and surprising, and in particular, and in practical ways, he provides for his people on their journey into his promises. God provides for his people in their journey into his promises. So we've talked about the stunning and surprising reality that the Egyptians will gladly give up their possessions. Let's look at the particular provision of God. Excuse me. The Israelites were about to embark on a 250-mile journey, a journey that would have ordinarily taken several months to a year. But we, of course, know if we've been in and around the Bible, we we know that the, the journey and the wandering took about 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness, not a lot of Walmarts out there, um, no targets, uh, 40 years. Little boys and little girls grow up a lot in 40 years. Uh, some in their teen years will grow out of their clothes in a week. Uh, all the little boys and little girls will grow out of their clothes in 40 years. So look at the particular and the practical provision of God. End of verse 22. He's, by having them put the clothing, which is just most, the most generic word for an adult person's coat, He's like, put adult coats on the children. And God is giving them what they need in the journey before they ever even know they need it. It's not going to make sense to them now, but they'll grow into it. And God's going to provide for them. At the end of Exodus, in the wilderness, God is going to give very particular instructions as to how the Israelites should build the temple. The temple is the mobile tent uh, in which God will dwell with his people in particular ways. And part of the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle includes lots of gold and lots of silver. It signifies God's beauty. It signifies his holiness, his value, his glory. Let me ask you a question. How would a generationally oppressed slave people come up with gold and silver worth fortunes when God asked them for it at the end of the book? if God didn't provide it for them right now. And so God is telling Moses in stunning, surprising, in particular and in practical ways, I'm going to provide for you as you journey into my promises. And so, you know, of course, think about this. How does the, how does the New Testament define us as the people of God? So remember, Exodus is the ultimate Old Testament picture of the gospel. The New Testament would not say that we're still enslaved if we're Christians. And the New Testament would not say that we're already in the promised land. So if Exodus is a picture of our salvation, which stage of the story are we supposed to see ourselves in? The New Testament says that the people of God, us, we're exiles in the wilderness that we have inherited the Holy Spirit and one another, but that we're citizens in a land that is above and is to come, that we have been delivered and forgiven and dwelt and empowered, but we have not yet entered into the fullness of the flourishing that God has for us. And so in the pilgrimage, in the journey into the promises of God, we have to know that God promises to provide in stunning and particular ways, but we have to know he gives us what we need, not what we 
want. If you know the story at all, for 40 years, the Israelites grumble and complain. At multiple points, they say, I'd like to go back to Egypt if that's okay. I really rather enjoyed what was happening there. I don't like it very much here. And as we read and as we watch that happen, it's very good for us to know that God gives us what we need, not what we want. And then when we ask for something we want that is not what we need, God is kind to say no. This is the second truth about God that he needs us to know as we watch the deliverance. He gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. Third, third truth about God in this prophetic preview of all that is to come is that God punishes evil. Now, we're going to, this is Cliff's notes, okay? We're in advance. We're, we're reading the Cliff's notes. We're going to study this stuff extensively in the weeks to come. But for now, let's simply say this. God punishes evil. He is just. Violence, oppression, manipulation, racism, and fantasied sin does not happen in a vacuum. In verse 16, God said, I've had my eye on you, but look at what else he said he had his eye on. I've observed what has been done to you in Egypt. He's speaking to the persecution and the oppression and the burdensome slavery and the affliction. And so again, in verse 18, they're supposed to go to Pharaoh and ask for permission if they can leave. But in verse 19, God says this to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt, it hasn't happened yet. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And God, this is why God knows Pharaoh won't let them go is because the text is going to say multiple times that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will not let them go. And the reason for that is it's not God's will for Pharaoh to simply let them go. Verse 20 is his will. I will stretch out my hand. It's the word for send out like a messenger. I will send out my hand and I will strike Egypt. So if you've been with me the last three weeks wondering what in the world is going to happen to the Egyptians for all that they have done, here's your answer. Strike is a very intentional word by God. It's the word that was used in the previous chapters to describe what the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites. They were striking them in wickedness, and God is going to justly bring it full circle and strike them. God will strike Egypt with all the wonders that he will do in it. He's talking about his ten plagues. He's talking about in advance what he's going to do in the plagues. And after that, he says, Pharaoh, he will let you go. Again, it's the word for he will send you out. It's the same word that God used for his hand. He's saying he won't finally give in. He he, he's saying he, he won't want to keep you, but can't. He's saying when I'm done with Pharaoh, he's going to send you out like a messenger. Moses is God. Yahweh, our God, is a God who makes everything right. He punishes evil, evil in his own time. He observes everything that has been done in Egypt. His punishment will fit the crime. His scales will balance. Quick note rabbit trail. If you've been reading with me in Joshua and City Bible reading this week, this text, this truth about God should begin to help you 
make sense of the war that is being waged in that book. I, I know, I personally know, even this week, I know how hard it is to read about entire cities being crushed and burned. I know how hard it is to read about every inhabitant of a city being put to the sword, 12,000 men and women. But this truth about God will begin to help us make sense of that reality. I'm not saying it'll make it easy. I'm saying it will begin to help it make sense. The war in the book of Joshua is not between Israel and the Canaanites. It's between God and the Canaanites. It's between God and the Canaanites' false gods. We know from the Bible, we know from history that wicked, vile, evil things were happening in the land of Canaan, from horrific sexual violence to the sacrificing of children to appease gods. And what we see in Joshua is God punishing evil. If you just think about it, the text makes this clear. It's one of the reasons I picked Joshua 5 as our call to worship this morning. Joshua comes upon a man who has his sword drawn. It's the commander of the Lord's army. It's another place again in the Old Testament where God shows up and God doesn't show up. It's that mystery again we discussed last week. And Joshua says, are you for us? Are you for, are you for our adversaries? And the commander says, no. It wasn't really a yes, no question. It was more of an either or question. And, and the commander of the army says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Get the sandals off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. And so from the very beginning, we are told this is God's war. This is not Joshua's war. The people of Israel are going to walk around the city and play their trumpets, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. God is going to incapacitate the entire army by circumcising them as adults without any forms of current medication. And he's going to make them lay there and prove to them that if the enemy attacked now, they would be done. This is not their war. This is God's war. Literally, he's going to make what's invisible visible in the book and show his army in the skies fighting. This is not Israel's war. This is God's war. It doesn't make it easy, but it helps to make sense. If you're seeking, if you're trying to figure Christianity out, I know that this point is a particularly hard point for you. The idea of God punishing evil is hard. The idea of God demanding a life for sin is difficult. I don't want to underplay it. It never gets easy, but it's understandable if you begin to understand the full picture. Okay? I want you to know, though, that you want this to be true. And not only do you want this to be true, I need to let you know that this is true. So first... If you're trying to figure this out, you want this to be true. When you hear of ethnic cleansing, when you hear of racism and genocide and terrorism, when you hear of a mother killing her child so she can party, when you and I hear of these realities, there is something inside of us that gets angry and cries out for justice for right and appropriate and fair judgment and punishment. And this is good. Of course, it happens even on lesser levels. Whenever we see the strong bullying the weak, it pisses us off. And we want somebody to do something about it. 
I was uh, at the beach a year or, or two ago, and I watched a bigger kid continually trip up and trap and hold under the waves a, a smaller kid. And the smaller kid was tearfully begging for the bigger kid to stop. And so I kind of looked around, and I was thinking, maybe, okay, maybe the older brother's teaching the younger brother a lesson. I get that. But there's going to be into this soon. And I looked around, and I thought, maybe his parents are going to definitely see what is happening here. And, um, and, and no one was doing anything. And so eventually, I walked into the water, and I let the bigger kid, a teenager, somewhere around the PG-13 to R range, because uh, that's what I used with him in my threats and language. He was somewhere around that. And I said, I'm done watching the affliction. The observation period is over. If you do it again, again, PG-13R, somewhere around there, he stopped. It took hours for my heart to calm down. Can you imagine God watching affliction for 430 years and then not wanting him to judge evil? No way. You want him to do this. You want to know that this is true about God, and it is. But you also need to know that this is true about God. In other words, what I mean by that is this, is that you need to know that maybe not to the same degree as Pharaoh, you and I have played the bully in our lives, and God cares. He's been watching. Um, here's the problem. Personally, I was the younger brother, okay? I, I, I was the tormented, picked on, bullied for all of his childhood guy. And here's the problem. I would dream and scheme and long for the day when I could be the bully. I didn't long for the day to be strong enough to stop what they were doing to me. I longed for the day to execute my plans of torment on them. I would have bought steroids if I could have gotten my hands on it. I literally drew up diaries full of how I wanted to torture my brother. Here's what the Bible says. I'm no better. The Bible says that all of us in our hearts are bullies. Some of us lack guts and opportunity. That the bullies we see just have more guts and more opportunity. And Jesus said it like this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Jesus is not saying it's not what you've done, it's what you wanted to do. He's noticed, he sees, he cares. So we want to know that God is going to do something about injustice, but we need to know that he's going to do something about our injustice. And then the good news, if you recognize the horns of the dilemma on which we sit, is that in this prophetic preview, Jesus tells us that our God is a God who accepts sacrifice. Go to verse 18. He told Moses, go and tell them I'm giving you a full salvation. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness. So three days' journey is a Hebrew idiom uh, for an extensive trip. It's a one-way trip. It's a long trip. They're not asking for a week off of work to come back later. They're essentially politely saying, we'd like to go on release from slavery and take a journey. And, and God, again, 
Pharaoh's going to say no, but he said, I'm going to strike. He's going to send you out. He's going to change his mind. Um, But what's the first order of business on the agenda for the people of God? End of verse 18, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Sacrifice, the death of one in the place of another. What does this communicate to the Israelites? You're no better than the Egyptians. The Old Testament is clear. God did not choose the Israelites because they were better. He chose the Israelites because he wanted to showcase his election and his power and his grace. And he is saying, sacrifice to me. You're no better. First order of business, watch this animal die. This should happen to you. This will happen to you if you do not identify your salvation in the one who is to come who replaces this animal sacrifice. He's saying to the Israelites, you're no better. This again, if you've been reading through Joshua, he he is saying this rather obviously by now. Remember Achan? Achan thought he was better than the folks who lived in Jericho. And, And instead of making sure that all the spoils of Jericho were burned and sacrificed to God, he he took some and he hid it. And God said, you're not better. And Achan paid with his life. In chapter 9, after defeating Ai, however you say that, all of Israel offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. Why? Another reminder that they would die if God didn't accept sacrifice. So now, I hate to pick on my Alabama friends, but I'm going to. You know the name Harvey Updike. Uh, Harvey Updike Jr., right? Some of you, some of you just cursed him. Some of you just prayed for his soul, okay? Harvey is an Alabama Crimson Tide uh, fan. He's the man who allegedly poisoned some trees that are particularly special and uh, worshiped by Auburn fans, okay? So Alabama and Auburn are longtime historic uh, rivalry. And it appears as though Harvey um, may, have hurt, may have hurt the trees. He did hurt the trees. He may have killed the trees, these special trees. And so Harvey, whose health is failing, who has been told by doctors, this is in his own words, draft a living will and get right with God. Okay, this is what Harvey has been told. And so Harvey uh, was on sports radio uh, this week. Uh, Friday, I think, maybe Thursday. And without saying he did anything because his lawyers forbade him, um, Harvey said this, I just want to tell the Auburn people that I'm truly sorry for all the damage I've done. I'm not asking for sympathy. All I'm asking for is forgiveness. And this is in his own words, just so you don't think I would speak like this. I want the people that's Christians, that's his words, I want the people that's Christians to understand I've done a lot of good in my life. I've never intentionally hurt anybody until this. Harvey has lots of serious problems, okay? But one of his problems is really, really bad theology. The Bible's clear. Christians are not better than non-Christians. Christianity is not defined as doing more good than bad. Christianity is this. God accepts sacrifice. Christians are those who understand Jesus' death is the sacrifice that was made on their behalf. As the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, he died for them in their place. Christians know this, that they should have died for their sins, 
But God became man and Jesus, and he lived for them, and he died for them. In order to take all of this full circle, think about it like this. Why does God declare us righteous, good, and beautiful, and not simply just forgive us? Why does God choose uh, uh, to be constantly present with us and not simply to remove us from Satan's presence? Why does God choose to deeply love us and enjoy us and not simply decide to not hate us anymore? Why does God place us eventually in paradise and not simply deliver us from bondage? Because Jesus left paradise to enter into our bondage. And so when he takes our bondage, we get his paradise. He's a God who doesn't do anything halfway. Because Jesus was deeply loved by the Father. And when the Father hated him on the cross, we were irrevocably given the Father's love because Jesus was hated. He doesn't do anything halfway. Because Jesus lost God's presence on the cross when he deserved God's presence forever. God's presence is with us forever, even though we don't deserve it. Because although righteous, Jesus took his sins in our body on the tree. And his righteousness didn't go into never, never land or evaporate. It went right into us. God doesn't do anything halfway. We have everything we need in Jesus. And in his time, he will take us into his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your grace and your kindness and your love. I thank you uh, for the reality that uh, I may not have bad theology like Mr. Updike, but I live as though uh, my good behaviors matter. I live as though I have earned your love. I live as though I can lose your love. I live as though you should bless me because I've been good for a long time. Would you please forgive me for that? And would you remind me of the gratitude that should be in my heart that everything comes from you, Jesus? I pray that as we sing now that you would give us a deeper understanding and a fuller vision of what you have done for us and you would release from us gratitude and worship and humility and praise. God, I I ask, it's been on my heart this week to ask from you for big things. I ask that you would do substantial things in the lives of your people here today. I ask that you, although ordinarily you like to do things bit by bit, I ask that this morning you would do uh, a huge things in the hearts and the lives of those present here. Would you save us? Would you transform us? Would you make us radically different than where we were before? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.